It's Dr. Tennant Scribble Highs. Let's start the show with Lewis Tennant. Here we go. Guests and interviews that you're looking for with creators, innovators, and so much more. For all episodes and further info, verbalhighs.com is the place to go. Welcome to Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs, a podcast podcasted from Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand. Regular listeners will know I am the host of the show. If you're new here, my name is Lewis. I am the host of the show, and the show is a conversational podcast, and I chat to a different guest one-on-one every week. A couple of times we've had two guests in, exciting times, um, but generally it's a one-on-one cordero with someone who um, is doing something that's um, of interest to me, and hopefully you. And certainly the people who've returned. Thank you, listeners. There's been, I just noticed there's 30 um, ratings on iTunes, which for a non mainstream show in New Zealand, I think is a lot of support. So it's a small thing. Um, if you haven't done it already, if you go to iTunes and rate the show highly, um, that'd be lovely. Or it's Apple Podcasts now, isn't it? It's, it's iTunes still on my computer, um, um, Legacy, whatever that term is. Um, but I think for a lot of you, it's, it's Apple Podcasts now, mate. It's all the same thing. Um, same means to yeah, you can rate it, and also you can leave a comment. There's been some lovely comments. Um, I got to be frank that that I I kind of um, I follow kind of how would you say best podcast practice in a lot of areas, kind of to the letter, except for one really crucial thing. Um, I actually teach podcasting to students as well, so one of the things I I, I, I hammer home to them has not been actually occurring on my show. And that is uh, frequency and regularity of episodes. How I got 50 out in the first year, 2017, seems a while ago now, um, I'll never know. Um, and since then it's been, uh, I won't bore you with facts and figures, but basically um, I haven't been getting as many up as I want, but probably more crucially following podcast best practice with an RSS feed. And what the listeners want is some kind of regularity and frequency. So here's a plan. I've got to tell you, I was actually thinking about um, just stopping, not not like for any kind of existential crisis or kind of throwing my toys out of the cot or anything. I just kind of like, um, I might be done with these, just thinking about teeing people up. But then I listened back to today's episode, and um, you know, it's never it's never particularly enjoyable listening back to yourself when you kind of check it before it goes on out. But I was happy with um, how I sounded. I thought I was engaged. I thought I didn't talk over Jen too much. Um, and I thought, yeah, uh, I should keep going on this because it's good for me in a number of ways and people seem to continue to enjoy it. If you want to drop me a line, I haven't heard from listeners for a while, I'm verbalhighs at gmail. So the plan is I want to get out, um, I'm going to sort of go a little bit um, fever pitch till the end of the year. I would like for some sense of, if only for my own um, uh, state of mind um, and, and well-being, I would like to average 25 episodes a year by the time I get to the end of the fourth year of the show, which is this year. So that means I'm actually going back into 2017 production level and I'm going to get one up a week till December. Just you watch me. And then from then on in, I've had to think about it for as long as this thing runs, as long as I keep doing it. I'm going to, from here on in, get an episode up a fortnight, from every fortnight from next year onwards. So basically 25, 26 a year. Um, that's exciting, eh? That's exciting. That's three minutes of your life. You just, oh, do people listen to the intros? I kind of, these are the 
thing I drag my heels about most. And um, some 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 shows I do. I always listen to Maron's um, uh, um, intro because they're obviously quite insightful. And he's a, he's a raconteur. I listen to um, Theo Vaughn's intro because he's like a kind of human um, surrealist painting. Um, others I skip through. Anyway, I better make mine a bit more um, interesting. Eh? Throwing numbers at you. Uh, I talked to Jen Ferguson. You would have read um, what she's about, and who she's about, why she's on the show uh, in the in the blurb for the show before you clicked on it. But yeah, they've started. A successful retail business which has endured through COVID in Peckham, uh, South London, mate. And uh, they're originally both uh, New Zealanders. I found out uh, after the fact that Glenn is in fact Whammo. Um, and I have a few people who are familiar with student radio, or old, older student radio, as, as, as listeners of this show. And Whammo was uh, the breakfast host on IDU for many years. Many years. Whammo, if you're listening to this, were you the host? If you were the host from 97 to 99 i know you hosted much longer than that but we would have um been on one a few one of those co- co- collective calls where we all called in from different stations how did we do that back then we must have had a party line yeah i think it was you and um oh maybe it was graham was graham how do you anyway it's fascinating stuff um so what did we chat about i chatted with her about um going moving from journalism to pr so that some people refer to that as, as going to the dark side that was her earlier career um and then moving into um hops burn and black uh their business and so basically um trading that career for a, a life of a, a granville uh, for thatchy cloth uh, the retailer the london retailer the hops burns the black um which is uh, which is a beer um chili sauce and and vinyl of course um, we talked about what she'd written over the years, written for Mix Mag and uh, the Sunday Mirror. We talked about where press is going, how magazines... Um, when was the last time you bought a magazine? When was the last time you actually bought... I was thinking about it. I don't... I Not for a long time. Although I was glad the listener came back. I, I pick it up when I'm, when I'm at grandmother's and I do need to buy one of the Flash um, Boutique once. Or I think it's quarterly metros um, to support that because it's been revived by a, a little um, collective collective of metro people um we talked about uh her uh, formative years at um at uh, orchestra camp in dunedin um, reminiscent again but more innocent version of um of uh, of the flute uh, the flute um at band camp in, in, in american pie <laughs> we talked about um repeat viewings of the danny boyle's opening london ceremony which I, i've not repeat view i've not seen it once but um but jen seen it a few times and i insisted yes mr bean was in it he's, he's he does plays the keyboard in here so you can watch either the whole olympic opening ceremony from 2016 or just the uh, mr bean video um we talked about cool britannia kind of turning into stink britannia um and lots of bunch of other stuff i'll just let you have a listen we, we talked about um, how neither of us have kids and how that was quite a conscious decision for Jen early on and we managed to do it without sounding like two scary adults in a Roald Dahl film which was lovely um, talked about a business being sustainable rather than um, the economic paradigm of growth which is over the 6 o'clock news finally said in New Zealand the other day um, climate change is real oh my goodness it's so it's so worrying I mean it's been around for decades hasn't it but um, I don't know what to do I'm sort of paralysed by it I've been thinking about it surely my work um, teaching communications, we could do some kind of group study looking at how to communicate, um, you know, um, messages of, of how to unfuck all of this in New Zealand. Uh, might be a good idea. I should talk to a few people at work about that. Um, thank you to my uh, new patron and, and sponsor from the from the mighty Waikato, um, Free FM. 
kindred spirits, um, independent, um, uh, what do you call it, Access Radio, talked about it a few weeks ago. You should check out uh, Phil's show. He runs uh, he runs uh, Free FM, but he also hosts the Retrospect 60s Garage Punk show, um, and he says it's not a um, regular uh, 60s music show. Uh, it's a raw fuzz strength 60. Oh Jesus! I used to be a, I used to be a copy maestro. It's all about raw fuzz drenched sixties punk and freak beat. To be fair, that doesn't roll off the tongue, Philip. And um, get this, he goes deep into the garage scenes in Japan, Mexico, the Netherlands, Yugoslavia, and um, pretty much everywhere that rock and roll um, went. So you can check out all the episodes. They're up online as well. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's called the Retrospect Sixties Garage Punk Show via Free FM. It's on Spotify, iHeartRadio, just like my show. Um, on my website, verbalhighs.com, if you go to verbalhighs.com slash New Zealand Podcasts, you can look at the New Zealand Podcast Directory, something I'm building. I think it's the longest, most comprehensive list of New Zealand-based themed uh, or featured shows, and you can click on them and you go straight to their audio. Uh, please like my show, leave a message, subscribe, and share on one of the uh, following services, Verbal Highs, uh, on Twitter, Verbal Highs Podcast, on Facebook, because there's a hip-hop crew who've put nothing out from Australia that got Verbal Highs on Facebook ages ago. So it's Verbal Highs Podcast and uh, Verbal Highs on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can also stream via Spotify or iHeartRadio. That's right. I give away this indie punk project to all of these multinationals and um, a a billionaire in his 30s um, sits in the Spotify office uh, stroking a cat, um, laughing maniacally. Um, And it also also beams all from my own own little corner. I've got a little bit of real estate on the web. web. I've got my own little pile of ones and zeros at uh, at, uh, (sighs) verbalhires.com. Straight down from up above. Good morning. How was uh, a good sleep? It was great sleep, actually. Weirdly enough, I've just been watching the one of the two um, AM or PM faces of Newsboy. Um, you know, he's a middle of the road, seven PM light current affairs presenter now. I have, I have been reading. I think the spin off, possibly the spin off. I've been keeping up with the antics anyway. What else to fill you on? On um, the news led today at six PM with climate change is real. Um, which is great, 15, 10, 15 years too late. Well, that's the thing. It's just like reports <laughs> now. It actually is too late. It's like, well, they've kind of been saying that every year, but um, yeah, now it's irre- irreversible. It's, uh, we're fucked. <laughs> I was going to talk about this at the end. Okay, let's get into it. <laughs> Bit of an introduction to why you're sitting here, which is um, I wanted to talk to you about starting a store outside of your home country, which must be an interesting thing to begin with. Is there one thing that, is it mainly beer or is it all three of the hot burns in black that sell evenly? It's a liquor store that has accompaniments for life, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It started out being mainly a beer store. Beer beer primarily, um, obviously a bit of wine as well. Hot sauce was the other thing and then we were selling quite a few records and over the years we've kind of you know, changed it slightly. It's, it's you know, as, as things have happened, you know, like pandemics. Yeah. Um, so we're now, you know, beer is still number one. Wine is a really big player for us. We do a lot of natural wine. Um, and that's kind of our tastes have changed as well. You know, we used to drink mostly beer. Now we're sort of evenly split between drink, enjoying beer and wine evenly. Yeah. Uh, hot sauce is always really key. You know, we're not, we were the first, I think, in the world to do beer and hot sauce and, and records. Uh, Probably the only place I was thinking today. Like, where else could you buy like a, uh, I don't know, a guided by voices album and a and a New Zealand craft beer and a bottle of chili sauce? 
Well, I'd imagine there's quite a few places now, because <laughs> every second shop in England seems to be a beer shop now. Yeah. So, and, and always, you know, a beer shop with extras now, because just a beer shop's pretty boring. Um, but yeah, since the pandemic, we, we don't sell any records anymore, which is a bit sad. But to be honest, it was always the, the kind of the add-on. It was the stuff that, you know, we loved it, but... No, I get it, and, and it gives it more of a concept than like we're a. Not that you're just a booze store, but it's. I, I yeah, I totally get that. The like, the the broader retail concept. So the way that I was thinking, like, because you're saying that when I when I was in London, which is twenty fuck twenty one shit twenty one years ago now, twenty years ago. Um, uh, we're getting old, Mr. Tennant. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, they. England and Ireland seemed quite behind kind of food and beverage wise. Like you couldn't even really find a very good brunch when I lived there. So you must have, when did you first get over there? I know you've come, you've lived back here and then moved back over, but when was the first move over there? Around that time, eh? Not far after I did. Yeah, I moved over June 2000. So, yeah, I landed, I think I landed in London on the 1st of July that year. And it was, you're quite right. I mean, one way to look at it is, is the coffee trajectory in the UK. You know, when I first got here, trying to get a good cup of coffee was almost impossible. Uh, there was a few little outposts. I think Monmouth Coffee at Borough Market was, was kind of fighting the good fight. Yeah. But the idea of a flat white... You know, coming from New Zealand, you know, it was a long black or a flat white, and it was ingrained. We'd had this coffee culture for, for quite a few years. Um, but it was still just starting out, and it was due to a lot of Kiwis and Aussies that really turned coffee culture on its head. I was wondering about um, his question whether it was like antipathy and press hype or whether that was actually what happened over there, that it was a, a Kiwi-Australian thing that turned it. So do you reckon most people, do you reckon the, like, the, the majority of Londoners would drink decent coffee now, or it would still be quite a, not, no, not as widespread as here, would it? I think it is. It's oh, wow. I mean, we sell coffee now. We know the hot burns and black is now is now coffee. Over lockdown, we um, you know got rid of the records and put in a um, espresso machine. Uh, it's it's everywhere, and flat whites and is is a default coffee. We sell more flat whites than any other product. Yeah, now. right. <laughs> that's only for one store. It's you know it's crazy. So, um, but I think you've you've got this this shift in in coffee culture absolutely mirrored this shift in in food as well, food and drink. Yeah, it was – London is a great place to eat and drink, you know, when you can get out and actually go to restaurants. I wonder what held them back so long in that regard. Like, it's not like they're far away from a lot of amazing kind of food cultures. I, I have no idea, yeah. but it's, um, it really started to happen. I think when I was sitting here, because I lived here from 2000 to 2005, into 2005, the first time I was here. Yeah. And even in that time, you know, the rise of the gastropub was a significant kind of shift for me at that time, suddenly you could go to your pub and get good food. What were you doing before you got into retail? I think I remember you, because it sounds like the devil's occupation, but you were in PR <laughs> quite a while, eh? I, I was, I was. So when I was in London the first time around, I was working in magazines. I was yeah. doing sort of sub-editing, reduction editing. And I you know, probably saw the writing on the wall with the, the end of magazines, or possibly I was just bored, <laughs> and went back to. That's why I went back to New Zealand the first time in two thousand and five was to to get into public relations, and so I did that for the whole time I was back in New Zealand, which was about seven years, and came back over here to you know continue doing public relations. But I hated it. I absolutely hated it when I was over here. You know, it was a different ball game. It was very 
just not for me. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting um, sort of field because it's like it gets maligned for a whole lot of really valid reasons. But then there's the, you know, you kind of talk about the good side of PR, but it's kind of like how much of it is actually um, for the good of humanity and how much, you know, I, I don't know. Did you, I guess I'm saying, did it feel like quite a shift from journalism? I was the real, I mean, you can ask any of my, my bosses in New Zealand, um, the poor ladies, they, they looked after me well, but I was a real pain in the ass because I refused to work on anyone that didn't agree with my ethics. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't work on the McDonald's campaign, for example. Or, you know, so, yeah. so I was lucky enough that I did get to kind of pick and choose who I worked for, um, which brands, and, and I think hopefully, you know, I had some really nice organizations to work with you know my favorite was was google before google got crazy and evil you know it was you know back when their motto was do no evil it was, yeah. it was a good time you talked about when you did the journalism i don't know whether it was a postgrad or a one year kind of going all over the shop here but bear with me you did the postgrad at polytechnic kind of i guess back then when back then when journalism was still kind of thought of as a trade did you find that in that era, you everyone kind of walked out into work if you were kind of okay and passed the course? The reason, because I, I, I kind of work in teaching comms now, and it's really different for our journalism majors. Like, was there shitloads of work out there even in Wellington and in New Zealand back then? It seemed to be, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, uh, looking at my my class of what was that ninety seven? Yeah, it's revealing my age. Ninety seven? Yeah. Is that right? No, ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. Anyway. One of, one of those times in the late 90s, um, everyone seemed to end up in, in jobs and anyone, everyone seemed to end up eventually in, in these great jobs. You know, yeah. the, the, basically the, the Wellington Polytech Journalism School, my year was just off, over the road from the Evening Post in, in the Dominion. So you could literally walk over there and get a job um, <laughs> at the newspaper. You could get some work experience. Um, yeah, kind of beat, still like beat reporting or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And so by the time you actually went out and looked for work, you had this clippings book of you know, fantastic stories that you'd had the opportunity to do. And I think, yeah, I imagine it's a lot harder. Same when, when I first came to London, actually. When I was sub-editing, I was freelance. And yeah. I would have phone calls all day long. It's, oh, can you come in next week? Can you do this? Can you do that? It was, um, yeah. A, for what sort of, like, like is that being, a, is that, is that being uh, you can still be a little bit discretionary or accepting everything? Like, are you writing for like I don't know? I'm going to totally like you're writing for a a, 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 a pet care magazine in one breath, and then a, or do you do you find your lane? You know, I think at the time there was so much work that you could be discretionary. Yeah. I mean, I worked for some great magazines. I was working for FHM for Mixmag was one of my biggest ones. I worked at Mixmag two weeks a month. Um, then I go off and work at the you know the Sunday Mirror's celebrity magazine. It was it was amazing. Wow, so because I mean, that would be intern written these days, because that's another thing that's changed, and I, I really fret for my students with this as well, that like you've just spent all this money on a degree, now go and do the thing free for a year, you know, and someone might hire you. So even places like Mixmag were paying by the word or whatever, rather than getting a bunch of interns in to write half of it. I was paid an hourly rate, so, you know, yeah. I'd get whatever it was, £125 a day or something for, for heading in there, so... Yeah, it was great. <laughs> but it was, yeah. But the thing was as well, not so much in New Zealand, but um, but definitely in, in London, there was a magazine for everything. You know, if you had like a small, strange, niche little thing, there was a trade magazine for it. Yeah, so there, for was, sure. there was so much work. Um, and I think in New Zealand as well, yeah, there's a lot of these smaller magazines that just don't exist anymore. There's a lot of yeah. bigger magazines that don't exist anymore. I mean, well, even, well. even in the population where, where you are, there mustn't be many 
titles that still physically exist on a on a milk bar shelf, surely. What survived magazine wise? At ten for ten or ten, maybe ten titles. That's a total guess. Yeah, it's sad. I remember when I came back here and I, I wasn't happy in, in PR. I actually called up my old magazine at the at the Sunday Mirror and said, "Look, you know, is there any work? Can I come back and do some subbing, perhaps?" And they're just like, "Don't do it. Don't get into magazines. It's, you know, you're pushing shit uphill. It's just not worth it." I don't know if you still follow the industry, but you you probably heard that Metro was one of the titles that fell and then it's kind of been bought as a boutique project that comes out like four times a year and you sit it on your coffee table wow yeah really i didn't know that yeah wow um i, I haven't I, this is so like this is like when people say why did what oh, really sad the record shop shut and then the owner's like i haven't seen you for 10 years to buy a record but i was just about to say like it's a great project it looks really good and i was about to say i've read a couple of the articles for free online so there you go but you know i have heard people are buying it yeah that era that era of i'm an old person reminiscing about uh, halcyon days in my life, but that era <laughs> I of do that, a lot of these days. <laughs> that era of um, of nineties New Zealand. Thinking of things like publishing, were you writing for Pavement and Remix, and was there a kind I, of round there of places to to work as well? I, I, I didn't I didn't work for Pavement, but yeah. um, I certainly did for for Remix. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, at that time, you know, it was. A really exciting kind of the late nineties, I think, for that dance scene was was a really exciting time. And yeah. I think for someone like me who kind of you know enjoyed just kind of dabbling around at the periphery of the of, of the scene, you know, I sort of turned up in Auckland in nineteen ninety eight, and by the end of that year, I was I was working. Yeah, I say working, wasn't getting paid, but <laughs> I was doing some things with, with, with things like Remix Magazine and George FM, and, and you know, it was great. You could, if you were keen and, and wanting to do stuff, there was a real opportunity to get in and, and kind of get involved. What brought you up here in 98? I was, I'd, ha- I'd been working at Parliament, weirdly enough, after journalism school, yeah. and sort of worked there for about 18 months after the MMP, the first MMP election. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. But realised, yeah, politics wasn't really for me. I was, you know, pretty much intensely apolitical at the time and it was a, a strange environment to work so were I, write, yeah. what were you writing policy or something no i wish i was an executive assistant so i was basically like a glorified pa that sounds like i had dreams of becoming a press secretary but it didn't really work out but, oh, oh that's good because i was going to say it sounds like the classic like it's sort of like gliding on sort of a public servant job that we need to give <laughs> we need to give it a name I will be an executive assistant, and the move to London was just to do the two-year OE? I was was only in Auckland for for two years, basically. I came up in January 98 and kind of left by, by, yeah, June 2000, so... To do the, like, bunny ears, OE bunny ears? I had always been obsessed with moving to London, ever since I was a child, because my mum's English, and she kind of came over, I think, somewhat reluctantly when she was 21 or 22 yeah. in the late 60s. And I think she'd never got over the fact that she'd kind of left swinging London or actually swinging Reading where she was. But so I'd kind of grown up just hearing about how amazing the UK was. And you know, so, so it was always kind of on my mind. And I think when I was um, 13, I was when I started getting obsessed with music. So I went down to an orchestra camp. And Dunedin, I played the violin for many yeah. years. <laughs> and I ended up at the student flat in Dundas Street. 
listening to a dub tape of the Smiths, Louder Than Bombs, which I ended up you know, pilfering at the end of the night. Yeah. Um, also drank booze for the first time, also got my first kiss. It was an eventful night. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just became absolutely obsessed with the Smiths. And Classical music suddenly went out the door. <laughs> uh, well, so you, you, surely your mother made it back to the UK over the years. She never made it back until wow. I actually moved over here. It wasn't until like 2002 that she finally, you know, was that I'm just, not sure why. Yeah, right. And um, how was that? Was, she, was it overwhelming or took it in a stride? I think she was very unimpressed <laughs> <laughs> at the time. But now, you know, she's, you know, until the you know, COVID hit, she's been coming over here every couple of years and she's yeah, obsessed with it again. I don't know why she's never moved back. But. Why was she unimpressed the first time? I think at the time I was living in a very small flat in Shoreditch, right next to a main road that had lots of roadworks going on. So she got no sleep. Right. She just yeah, she was just grumpy the whole time. She hated it. Okay, but and lastly, it wasn't really London's fault. I know you don't want to. Um, lastly, because you said you came on up in Nelson, so how, if your mum left the swinging sixties, did you guys end up in Nelson? <laughs> so mum's parents moved out to Nelson. It was one of those. Yeah, I think a lot of. A lot of people sort of headed over there to retire in the, in the 60s. It was quite well marketed to, to kind of, you know, ageing British couples, perhaps. So they moved, they'd moved over a year before and, you know, built a house in Nelson and they stayed there for the rest of their lives and mum kind of joined them a, a year later. So there I was. Oh, her parents. Her, 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 her parents. Yeah. Oh, my God, I was going to say, is your mum 150 or something? I was trying to work that out. I thought you meant she moved over at retirement age. <laughs> no, she was she was very young. And so, two thousand two. This is the most all over the shop timeline wise um, chat I've done, but that's fine. When I listen back, it will all make sense. Um, this is a big question, but in a, in a general sense, we started off talking about kind of food and, 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 and beverage. How do you think London's changed in the? Because I often think that, like, I, I I got such a small taste of it. I was only there for about six months. But um, does anything spring to mind if I say how's, how's London changed in 20 years? Because you have kind of been there nearly two decades now. Two decades, on and off. Oh, my God. Everything is different. Yeah. It's, um, I, I guess when I first came over here, sort of, you know, that first 2000, 2005, it's, it's kind of, it was such a great period of my life. Yeah. That I kind of, I was so busy doing loads of things that I didn't really realise what a good position you know, we were in at the time. Oh, I, I, know, I think if you, you fra- sorry to cut you off, but I think if you frame it like that to begin with, absolutely, because so many people just struggle in the first year or two and don't make it, you know, so kudos. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, just generally it was, um, you know, at that time it was, it was Tony Blair. It was before he'd kind of blotted his copy of it with the whole Iraq war nonsense. Mm. Yeah. It was, it was a boom time. Oh, you moved over good. during cool Britannia. The cool Britannia, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you kind of didn't realise that was such a good time. It was just, it was a fun time, but, you know, politics really didn't play a part. Fast forward 21 years, and politics is just at the forefront of everything you do. It's a really crazy, crazily divisive society here now. It's, oh, um, you don't have to say, you don't have to end that sentence with here. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, generally in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, you might say in one brief, you put that down to age and becoming um, more interested in politics. But in terms of it being a combat sport, yeah, I think it's more, much more in, in, in kind of everyone's lives. Mm. I mean, interesting for us was, was coming back to the UK in 2012. So. Yes. So this is coming back to how, yeah, how things have changed. Yep. 
how's this timeline going for you? It's great. I'll be, edi- I'll be going to be editing for about the next three weeks. <laughs> so here we are. We're in 2012 now. Yeah, yeah. I've been back to New Zealand. I've lived there for seven years. Yeah. I've met a which, which we're going to come back to, but anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've met a lovely man called Glenn Williams. Yeah. I've twisted his arm. He's coming back to, yeah. to London with me. So we arrived back just before the 2012 Olympics. And, oh, my God, I'd been kind of preparing you know, Glenn for, like, well, this is, this is London. It's, you know, it's not a very friendly city. It's pretty grubby. It's all this, that, and the other. We come back. It's amazing. Everyone's left town because no one wanted to be around for the Olympics. Um, and it's people are friendly, people are smiling at you on the tube. You're like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone's left town. Like, like a lot of people just can't leave London. They're, they're so deep in London. So, well, a lot of the popular. Not, no. not everyone's left London, yeah. but, yeah. but a, good, a good amount of people have, have left the city thinking, yeah, this is a good time to take our holidays. It's going to be crazy with all these tourists coming in. Yeah. So the city was pretty much empty. It was very bizarre. Uh, but it was just this real positive time. You know, obviously not a silver bullet. You know, there was still a lot of shit going on in the country as, yeah. it, as it was. But, but there was just this magical time. And I think anyone that was in the city at that time during the Olympics, it seems bizarre to, to you know pin it all on you know, a sporting competition. But it was a great time to come back. So, you know, so, so it's like your timing was good again for being there. It was it was brilliant. Yeah. You know? I mean, I still I still can't watch Danny Boyle's opening ceremony. I've seen an opening ceremony of the Olympics five times. How crazy is that? Who does that? Um, but so many people did. You know, this Danny Boyle's opening ceremony really summed up. What it was, you know, to be in London, it was a really optimistic time. I think we all felt like, well, this is this is the start of something great. Here's this diversity on on show. Here's this community. Let's take this forward and have a wonderful lives. This is great. Everything's going to be good. How long did um, that last? <laughs> well, the Olympics are only two weeks long, of course. I think. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's it, it wasn't a magical time. For, for a lot of people anyway, but it's certainly, I think, you know, 2016, what a fucking year. Wow. Was, I think the only thing I know about that opening ceremony is, of know of, is um, Mr. Bean doing a piano, doing a, does that ring a bell if you've watched it? Doesn't Mr. Bean I guess he was opening ceremony, yeah. But um, but basically, I mean, you had you had um, Carl Hyde from Underworld doing the soundtrack. I can't believe you're Hyde. trying to sell me on... Going I'm possibly you, tonight after this to watch an old Olympics opening ceremony on YouTube. Go and watch it. It's like they, yeah, it's, it's basically Underworld. If Underworld did, <laughs> did Olympics, then it, it is literally Underworld doing it at the Olympics. It's I'd like to see mad. some of the sports involved in that. Oh, goodness. Did you watch, did you watch, um, do you watch uh, opening ceremonies since then to compare them to the, to the grandeur and hope of the London 2008? 2006 hey, look, I, Olympic. I don't make a habit of it, but I did. I did see about an hour or so of the Tokyo opening ceremony, just because it was on over here at the time when you're watching breakfast. So, what was it? Was it an afternoon? Anyway, I watched a bit, and it was very. Um, I found it quite, quite, um, quite maudlin. Actually, <laughs> it was really depressing. It's an interesting hey, term. It's a depressing time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a crazy thing to put on but it seems everyone got out unscathed so um what would i know um back in the time machine again i didn't realize till tonight when i found your twitter account that your partner glenn is 
Wemo, who was on probably one of the longest serving student radio breakfast hosts in New Zealand. Am I right? Was he? On I think he probably ever? was. Yeah. yeah, he was ten years at, um, at RDU in Christchurch. I think. So, we, how did you meet him? Had he moved to Auckland? He hadn't actually. When I first met him, I was, was I'd just come back from London, and my first job as a PR person at, at PED PR was uh, was doing the Xbox 360 account, and I had to travel to Christchurch and show off this games console, which is pretty hilarious because I've never played games in my life. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I had some expert gamers to, to help me with that, and he was there. Um, you know, had a chat to him. He was a very pleasant chat. He said, do you want to come out with a drink with me and my friends afterwards? I said, no. <laughs> um, but I, you know, kept sending him games and uh, it wasn't until the big day out in 19... I can't be 19, must have been 2008. Yeah. Right. He, uh, we we met at the bar. He gave me a gin and tonic and then we uh, had a snog at LCD Sound System. <laughs> very forthcoming with your snogging stories. Um... Before, <laughs> and uh, six or eight years before that, you and I find this uh, impressive that you managed to establish a successful club night in London because it's just such a huge city with so many people trying to do that exact same thing. How did that come about? Oh, yeah, it was a, again a fantastic time in our lives uh, so we yeah we'd obviously we'd landed in london i was fatting with my my friend nikki groves who was who was going out with dj dean webb at the time and yeah. dean webb's always an amazing dj but didn't have anywhere out you know, anywhere to play out so we thought well, we've got to we've got to create that opportunity so we were living in brixton at the time and brixton was a, a good place for partying yeah. uh, we found a pub the white horse up on brixton hill which is a kind of den of iniquity i know, and, I, I know uh, that pub yeah <laughs> i yeah, know that it's, yeah. It's a great pub. yeah and so southside soul was, was born so we held it every fortnightly sunday and this is again but wait but wait but wait but wait like i just imagine the amount of people wanting to be promoters or djs in london like you make it sound so simple you just walked in and the guy said yes great start doing it well, I think that's, yeah, that's why we did it on a Sunday because the right. only time we had available was a Sunday night slot. We're just like, well, our people don't care. We know we're young and we're keen and, and a lot of our crowd was, was Kiwis. You know, there's a lot of us that were out there and at the time, you know, without being that whole kind of like walkabout awful, you know, Kiwis in London thing. No, absolutely. It was, yeah, it was a kind of a blend of local Brits and friends and, and, and Kiwis. No all black shirts and going to Gatecrasher. Yeah. No, no. It was also a time when, you know, Everyone was travelling, and so there's so many DJs coming across from yeah. New Zealand. They're either you know holidaying or they were actually you know touring. So we just managed to, to we'd find out when people were coming and saying, well, "Look, while you're here, you're probably not going to be doing anything on a Sunday evening, right? Yeah, come down and play some records at this night." So we had yeah, it was amazing. I think Manuel Bundy played our second second event. Uh, Sawani came over. He drew such a crowd they had to shut down the gig because. <laughs> Too many oh people. yeah, because um, because he'd had press in the UK, and the paper recordings guys would have hipped people to coming to see him as well. Because that's the sort of next question. Not that it matters uh, either way, but just out of interest, did um, did locals and sort of um, people from outside of New Zealand started turning start turning on it? It was always mainly yeah. a kind of Kiwi crowd. No, no, absolutely no. We, we we sort of always did it so we'd have you know some some Kiwi DJs, some some locals, and yeah. you know, and the pub itself was you know, was famously. Yeah, a party haven, so you'd always get a good crowd of, of local people up for it anyway. 
Yeah, and anyone who's spent some time in London who's in, and is into music knows that there's enough population there and it's enough of a global music hub that a Tuesday or a Sunday or a Monday kind of doesn't matter. If I'm sure I used to go like the drum and bass night was on Tuesday, the big one for years, and then Giles Peterson was on Monday for years, wasn't he? Do you well, that? yeah, I mean, Bar Rumba was... Bar Rumba, was that's a, right, yeah, a, yeah. A huge destination That was the one kind of... In the, it was kind of in the in the city, city of London, right? Rumba, from memory? It was in sh- just off Shaftesbury Avenue. It was kind of this weird, weird little space in the middle of, like, you know, of the West End, basically. And you had, you'd have Giles Peterson with his night. You'd have... We used to go down to to a space which was Luke Solomon and Kenny Hawkes' night. That's um, right. That was that was on a Wednesday and that was our kind of our big night. But yeah, that was yeah, one of the biggest nights in in London and in, in kind of clubbing was was Errol Alkin's night trash, which was on a Monday. And it's it's kinda of yeah. mad to think about raving on a Monday. Yeah. But you know, it was full every every week. It's a real, it was because it's however many million people and it's a city that's up for it and it, like I say it's, it's a music hub I um, cried with joy the first day I landed in London not weirdly because I'd looked at Big Ben or anything but because someone said it's Bank Holiday and um, Notting Hill Carnival was on and um, I kind of wasn't you know I mean I knew what to expect but I didn't expect the the reaction I had are you a carnival are you a carnival diehard or I'm not a carnival diehard. I've been sort of maybe three, three or four times. Yeah, I, I sort of, yeah. It's it's always recently. It's been plagued with really bad weather. It's always yeah. been a bit cold and shit. So we've kind of given it this. But um, and usually I've been working as well over the last few years. I kind of had you know a very limited social life given this bloody shop. The one thing about retail is you have to be there a lot uh, outside of lockdown. So do you feel? Does it feel like? Does it feels like home now? It does, yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, we've lived in Peckham here since 2013, and, and you know, like London's made up of a load of villages. Yeah, and so if you can find the right village for you, it's it's a, it's a nice life. Yeah, I love. I've always loved South London. I feel like it's kind of where you go when you first land here. I think if you know, if you were if you were whisked away to to East London, that would be your thing. If you sort of ended up in North, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I got off the plane and almost almost went straight down to Brixton. So I was kind of South London. I didn't harbour right. any. Mine was more that I, I kind of was dossing with different. There's a there's a very much a travelling in London back then word I haven't used for years. I was dossing the classic like eighteen people in a four bedroom flat, and they were all the way out in West Acton. But um, I just knew from again music i'd been into and that whole kind of connection to jamaica and stuff to go to brixton so i kind of jumped on the train that day just randomly exploring i don't think i ever actually lived down that way but yeah i did spend quite a bit of bit of time down there so where you know situate me peckham peckham's a bit further up isn't it it's but it's still south so peckham's pretty much just it's east of east of brixton so so, yeah, so you kind of you've got Brixton, you go along, you've got Camberwell, and you've got Peckham, and then if you keep going, you get out to Deptford and Greenwich. When you came back, I was, you know, you can you can approach this however you want, but I've, I've seen you be quite honest on Facebook a couple of times about struggling with being back in New Zealand. Um, what was it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I only went back to New Zealand. I kind of meant to stay like a year or two. I thought I'll come back. I really want to get in public relations. I'll get, I'll get some work experience, and I'll 
come back to the UK, but I ended up staying seven as I kind of, you know, enjoyed my job and met Glenn. Um, took him a while to, to have his arm twisted, but I really, really, really miss London. So I'd kind of find that, you know, every, every winter I'd be sitting here in a rainy Auckland watching everyone just having a blast in the London summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was especially hard when, when, you know, things like Glastonbury rolled around. It's like, oh, what am I doing here? But I think, you know, what I also found was, you know, I was – kind of on my own a little bit you know a lot of my friends were sitting down to raise families yeah, and that I, was just, I, I feel that here totally I get that yeah yeah and that was you know I was just like this isn't this isn't for me I mean you know for me I was I decided really really early on that I didn't want to have kids yeah so I kind of feel like my life's been kind of a little bit dictated by that I've, I've been quite you know I haven't been tied down by any deadlines to do this or do that or yeah so so I was kind of yeah I felt, I felt a little bit out of place and I felt like I hadn't kind of that I'd left too early, that I still had more to achieve over here. And by more to achieve, by that I you know, mostly meant more parties to go to. I hasn't finished. But do you think it's fair to say that, because um, this is a number of points you drew on there, that if you are in that situation you're in, Auckland perhaps doesn't present itself with a lot of opportunities to kind of just go out and get amongst it? Like, like I'd imagine it kind of felt a bit, bit more like Sunday here all the time when you came back. Not the Sundays like the club nights you're putting on, but a version thereof. Yeah, I haven't lived in the UK for, for a long time, so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. You it mean, seems, certainly you mean seems in like New Zealand? Oh, sorry, I've been in New yeah. Zealand for a long time. It certainly seems like you've got a lot going on, but that's because we, we haven't had much for a long time over here. But I think, you know, what I've always loved about London is just this, you know, Mad diversity. You know, you can go out on any night and find things to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the dance floors themselves are really diverse, you know, both in, in the people they attract and the musical styles they play. You know, there's just, there's so much choice. And I really miss this, you know, at the time we're talking, you know, like 10 years ago in New Zealand. I think, you know, I, I eased the kind of the, the London cravings by, I used to go regularly to the turnaround, which was, yeah. I thought was, you know, like, like stepping to back it. onto London. That yeah, was yeah. amazing. That was such a good night. What, Auckland hasn't managed yet and I hope it does one day is it's actually got far more diversity than when you and I lived here in the late 90s but it just hasn't figured out as a city how to make elements of that kind of combine and tick together that's another thing I mean about the satellite satellite Mm. thing and I've often thought something like a big multicultural festival or something run by the right people. I said to someone else on another episode, I thought of someone like, you know, Gene. You must know Gene. You know Gene? You still own Galatos? Just some, yep. a few people with the right attitude running something like that because I think it's all here, but I think Auckland hasn't come to terms with how to be a multicultural city. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And yeah. I think, you know, there's something wonderful and I, I think it's 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 multicultural and it's also age as well yeah. you know i feel like you know as, as you know someone <clears throat> well into their 40s i could i could go out to it to to most clubs or bars or whatever here in london <laughs> out <laughs> to, and and not feel out of place i'm not going to feel like the old person on the dance yeah. floor thanks um, thanks to the summer of love there's plenty of people in their 60s going out over there still <laughs> yeah that's good um it's got, I mean, what I, what I love to see is, is you know, old ravers are, are, are raving, which is which has been brilliant. No, you're right. Like, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't really go out much by choice. Do you remember? But, but, but if do I, you remember? But, but if I did, 
um, that's another thing. Like, yeah, the nightlife here probably is pretty pretty young still. If you were to go on out, yeah. I'm sure there's pockets. But you know, the last the last um, club night I've been to, obviously with with you know 18 months of various lockdowns and nightclubs only just reopening. The last club night I went to was uh, Cupid Bar with Russell Brown and Alan Parrott. When was that? Back in January 2020. And I came back over. We, we had a holiday in, in wow. January 2020 when, it, when we thought we probably got COVID, actually. But um, that's another story. But it was great. It was really just a, a really diverse. I mean, Cupid Bar seems to be doing some cool stuff. That's, they're having a birthday soon. And, um, yeah, she used to bartend somewhere. I DJed for a while. And it's like a great success story of someone going out on their own and buying a bar. And she's just, like, done that complete kind of what you're talking about with yeah. um, the approach to your retail store, like just being in one spot and concentrating on the locals and having, you know, the people that support it really, really support it. One other thing I don't want to lose sight of, because it's interesting that you spoke of, actually we spoke more broadly about it via email. Um, You feel like your decision to not have children can be viewed with some disdain by people. I'd not really thought about that. (laughs) <laughs> but I think it's just one of these things that, you know, people don't tend to kind of talk about it too much. And certainly I think, you know, I, I know a lot of, you know, not a lot. I think there's enough people on the planet. Here. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> but, you know, but, but, you know, there's a reluctance from people that choose not to have children to kind of talk too freely about it. I, I've been quite lucky. I've had not, you know, I've not really had any pressure from from people saying, you know, when are you going to have kids? Oh, you'll change your mind. You know, that sort of thing has been quite quite limited for me. I think people have kind of realised she. She really doesn't like kids. She probably shouldn't have any. <laughs> but I think yeah. it, there's, a, there's a kind of, I feel like it's quite, It's I've had a pretty free and easy life and in many respects because I haven't ever felt restricted by this kind of ticking biological clock. I haven't ever felt that my choices have been, you know, dictated to by by the prospect that I've, I've got to have kids. And, and I've, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, a lot of a woman's life is, is dictated to by these societal yeah, conventions. And, and the biological clock and, yeah. Yeah, you know, you need to meet the right path by this age so you can have children by this age and you need to ensure that you've got a house and a job and everything to to bring them up in and you know for a lot of women this can be incredibly stressful you know i've seen my friends struggle with trying to find a partner and then trying to get pregnant trying to ensure that they that they're going to be able to provide for their families and you know my heart really goes out to them it's, it's so <laughs> you talking about. <laughs> yeah no, no, you know you know, it's 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 to some it's so much yeah. pressure and so so much anxiety. You raised something else with that that I've kind of I've kind of spotted is that you know you gave it that thought just like the people I know who gave it have a similar level of thought that they wanted to have kids and then there's a kind of middle ground of, of people I can think of who kind of have kind of done it because that's the thing you're kind of supposed to do. And, um, you know, some of those people, I mean, I'm not saying I've got friends who don't like their kids or regret it, but there's, I can just think of people who maybe just did it because that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a friend who says, I love my kids, but they've ruined my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but there's, but those, yeah, there's but those magical moments you'll never have, Jen, you won't know about those moments where it's absolutely magic. Yeah. Oh, They're better than any moment. I totally, I do absolutely totally get that, and I, you know, I don't think it's just you know, it's just the way that the biological coin falls. You know, so some I've heard. Others, some people won't, and and you know, it's um, I, I, I feel like I've had you know a, quite a, 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 a an easy life because I haven't been subjected to these pressures. And, and yeah, know, subjected. Kind of like that's a great me, word but. too. Um, now there was something else profound I wanted to 
add to the end of that topic. Oh, that's right. Um, it's funny. I have kind of n- not 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 kind of directly mulling over the topic, but I've realised that I've never really had a desire to have a family. But it's only later in life, as I look at my mother now getting older, that I feel a little guilty not guilty i feel a little like from time to time i wish she doesn't have grandkids and i'm the only child but it's like mm-hmm. what do you do has your mum got grandkids my mum doesn't my sister and i both i think decided we didn't want kids and um, and i guess you know possibly that's because we you know we watched our mum you know bust her bust her gut trying to yeah. provide a great life you know, she, she had my my father well she wasn't a single mum but you know she really you know the pressures of of running a household and the pressures of just, you know, making life wonderful for these horrible, ungrateful brats. <laughs> it was really hard. And I yeah. think my sister and I both saw that and just thought, fuck that. You know, we've got, we don't want to do that. We, we yeah, there's, there's, there's. Uh, well, I think here's a good landing, landing um, for where we've come to. I think at least we've probably particularly more so women, have kind of got more of these options these days, you know. I mean, that's a that's a positive societal change, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I actually, you know, weirdly enough, for, for not liking children, I've, I've been loving being kind of godmother to to my my friends' children, and you know, that's a kind of nice. So you set. do like children? I do like certain children. Yeah. Very particular on which children I like, but um, but yeah. I've my thing is not that I don't like children it's that i was the only child in quite a small family uncles and aunties didn't have kid aunt kids auntie had a child many years later so my only cousin is like 19 so my thing's more that i grew up a little adult in terms of like um i don't mean maturing early or anything like that but just being the only kid at the dinner table and christmas Mm. and all of that like i just don't I don't know how to relate to kids as well as people who've had lots of kids around. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I'm, like, I should lie, I feel like I should lie on a couch now and keep talking to you, but... <laughs> the doctor is in. The doctor's out. Squeaky chair. <laughs> um, so how do you get... When you get... Because I, I, th- I think starting uh, any business, particularly retail, brick and mortar, is a hard job of it. Um for all the reasons we all know in the last 10, 20 years. But how do you approach that on the other side of the world? Like, I, I don't know, I just feel like it would be more of an existential challenge than um, trying to do something like this in New Zealand. How did what, how did the kind of, what was the genesis of, of we should start a shop and it should do this and we should do it here? Well, yeah, but I think, you know, when you're, when you're desperately trying to find an escape from something, you'll, uh, you're kind of, you're motivated to, to, do it, to do it better and quicker. So, I mean, by, you know, Glenn, Glenn and I were both, you know, not really thrilled about our day jobs. So, we're just like, what can we do? What do we love? Oh, we love beer. Oh, yeah. and we love hot sauce. And we love music. And we love wine. All these things. It's like, so if we're going to surround ourselves, if we're going to kill ourselves doing these long, long dates, let's make sure that all the stuff that surrounds us is stuff that we're really passionate about. Yeah. You know, there's an old adage, you know, do what you love and it doesn't feel like work, which is actually wrong because it should be, you know, do what you love and you'll be working all the damn time. Yeah, but, true. Um, but yeah, but we're also, you know, because we're living in this, this you know, lovely village, close community of, of Peckham, that sounds like some kind of 
it's, it's not it's not a village obviously it's a uh, central london it's urban london but um there is just a really very supportive spirit about the place and we just yeah but, but we still but still the we're so, there's always kind of naysayers and you kind of you know you do need to play devil's advocate with yourselves and so on with these kind of quite large projects Surely some people said you're, surely some people said you're mad starting up a, a, a retail outlet. A few people did, but yeah. I think I, I definitely felt that there wasn't the kind of the tall poppy syndrome that you might get in, in New Zealand a bit more. You know, London's so big. Yeah, in most cases, people really don't care what someone else is doing. You know, everyone's just getting on with their lives. I, I, that's what I love about London. It's this kind of anonymity. You can do what you like. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people don't give a damn. So. Yeah, we, we just thought we, we love living here. We want to sort of put down some roots and, and you know, extend, expand our community footprint. So it's opened the shop. It went well. Let's open another one. So we opened a, a second branch over in Deptford and we've now got an online warehouse as well. But, but, but so, wait, 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 wait. But opening a shop, like, I mean, I could figure out how to open a shop, like lease premises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Was it as simple as that? You just jumped on in. Surely there was a business plan and a, you know. There was, there was yeah. a big business plan. Yeah. yeah I, I actually took, because I was freelancing, so I sort of took about three months off just to focus fully on getting everything right. And the hardest thing, to be honest, was finding good premises. Yeah, I was thinking that. That's what I wanted to ask you about. So what was that process like? I genuinely love of, this sort of stuff, by the way. So, yeah, but I mean, basically, the premises that we found was um, we went round to this laundrette on East Dulwich Road, just around the corner from our house, yeah. to take a duvet in to get dry cleaned. And went there and found that there was a closed down sign on the door. I'm like, well, that's sad about the laundrette. Now we're never going to get a duvet cleaned. Um, <laughs> but maybe we can, you know, let's find out. Is this site up for grabs? Because it's a perfect site. Yeah. Let's go here. And that was a site we had to wait for, you know, for property developers to do their thing. And, you know, right. so, I think, so, so I think better than um, square meterage, tell us, give us the size in commercial washing machines. How big was the space in commercial <laughs> washing machines? R- roughly. <laughs> Uh, well, 35 square metres. Oh. How many washing machines is that? Okay. 35? You, you'd be terrible okay. at theatre sports. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> theatre sports. Do they still do that? Well, wow. just, you know, that advance, advance, advance. Um, yeah, I was watching a Mike Brabiglia film about a theatre sports troupe the other night. It was pretty good. Um, so you like like when you find a space for a party or uh, you see it, you've been looking for 10 flats and you go, fuck, this is the one. Was it yeah, like, this yeah, is the perfect it. space, was it? Or yeah, that, that's we just, ideal. We, 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 we were tossing up between two and you, we just went out basically with a with a notebook, stood outside and walked past and just totally judged people. So would they shop at our shop? Tick. Great. Would they shop at our shop? So it was just, yeah, t- notebooks and notebooks with the tallies standing there looking at foot traffic and just, you know, is, are these the kind of people that shop at the stupid hipster shop selling bloody craft beer and hot sauce and records? <laughs> and, um, and this place, this place went out. Right. And so you did all that kind of um, logical business stuff like telling foot traffic and who's actually walking past. Neither of you kind of did a night school for business or whatever like was it like with all your background and i guess having the internet these days was that enough yep yeah i bought two books on on how to run a small business read those took notes which one would you which one, would you recommend either of them <laughs> yeah, they're quite outdated now oh, okay yeah one i've talked a lot about widgets and how to sell oh, widgets yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but um, but a lot of you know, you know, a lot of it was 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 instinctive, really. Yeah, and we were kind of lucky that um, we could the two of us do things. We work quite well together. It's quite crazy to think that we live together and work together. And we kind of oh, haven't got out of each other's sight. Sign of a great relationship. Yes, yeah. although possibly a lot of really bad arguments along the way as well, which is also the sign of a good relationship. And then going in, like obviously the other thing's the financial thing because if it doesn't go as well as you'd hoped you don't want it to kind of fuck up your life for a long time mm. moving forward so um was that quite a big deal going on in like setting up or did you manage to set it up for f- fairly kind of reasonable price considering it was it was, it was reasonably 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 reasonable i i'd go back to new zealand i'd sold my house yeah. in mount Hollywood. um obviously Rookie move. Obviously, I don't know how much it'd be worth now. I try not to look, but um, so so yeah. The sale of that gave us some some money to play with, which we invested into the shop. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think you know the fact that we didn't have children to worry about. Yeah. That we could just say, well, if we if we really stuffed this up, you could live in a house bus and go to Glastonbury yeah. and then just drive it's- around till the next Glastonbury. That's right. That's right. So so yeah. So, so yeah. It was a risk, but it wasn't as huge a risk as it might have been. But we're also pretty confident it was going to work. You know, at the time, there was maybe three specialist spare shops in London. Craft beer was becoming wow. a real thing. I'd worked in, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd done some craft beer work in New Zealand. Glenn was had, had done, I think, craft beer reviews on his radio show. So the two of us were mad about beer already. So we had the kind of the, the passion, the interest. We had some industry contacts, and we just knew that it was going to be. It was it was on the, the crest of a wave. So I no, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say it's it's bizarre. You know, from from us being beer shop number four in the whole of London like there literally is almost one in every neighbourhood now but that must give I mean I know business is business and it can be cutthroat but that gives you some kind of mana in terms of long term custom and people knowing who you are and I guess a number of come and gone as well right yeah yeah, absolutely, and I think you know we we kind of came out came out of the gates with a hiss and a roar. You know, we had a lot of publicity, a lot of interest in those first couple of years that we were around, and I think we sort of established ourselves as you know we won lots of awards. Yeah, you know, we were seen as as you know one of the one of the, the pinnacles of the game, and and you know, at that time we also had a lot of approaches from investors and property developers. You know, it's like let's take this, let's make this a chain, let's you know. Come to Canary Wharf. Oh, no, cheesy guys in bad cologne coming <laughs> yeah, through the door. Yeah. And certainly, you know, some, some of the approaches we had from investors were, were really exciting. You know, there's one that had, had done a, a quite famous restaurant chain. And we're just like, okay, these yeah. guys, you know, they're on our wavelengths. But at the end of the day, we're going you know, to st- have all the staff on roller skates. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. With bottles of beer, it'd be fantastic. But, yeah, I mean, we, we, we got quite excited about it. Quite, we're just like, let's open up a shop every year and let's make this big. But after about three years, I think, we're just like, actually, we really enjoy this life. We in, in, enjoy what we do. We've, yeah, we opened a second shop. We're just like, this is cool. We had an online shop that was doing really well. So everything was, was just cranking on, doing really well. But... We just thought, this is it. This, we actually, for now, we don't feel like we need to do anymore. We've got a fantastic team around us. We're actually just loving what we do. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we wanted a business that kind of suited our personalities and suited, suited our lifestyles. I think a lot of people get caught up with this idea, especially in London, because yeah, it is so competitive. You know, you get caught up with this idea of growth at all costs and you have to expand, expand, expand. Well, but, you know, 
for us, we're, we're, we're ambitious, but it's kind of, it's, it's gentle ambition. We've kind of realized that, that, you know, we're not cutthroat. We don't want to rule the world. Well, the, we other, the, other, the other thing the is, the other thing is, which I'm sure is a factor you've, well, I know it's a factor you would have considered, is that, um, speaking of the one news saying climate change is real <laughs> at 6pm tonight, um, growth is not the economic, growth is not the economic paradigm the world needs to live in at the moment. It's kind of like mm-hmm. sustainability and going by your means. So, yeah, yeah. you can't. You yeah. Just, we can't all try and grow. It's ridiculous. It's a definition of unsustainable, right? Yeah. Not, not that two, not we- that two, not the two extra beer shops is going to like cause <laughs> you know massive carbon footprints. But you get my drift. It's like I think no. yeah, ethically, you. I think it's. it's I was I kind of liked that when you told me that via email. Well, I think as well. You know. It, we, we sort of had this, this, this bombshell moment before the pandemic um, that this like, you know, let's just go for contentment factor. Let's not go for, for craziness. Yeah. Let's just, are we happy doing this? Have we got a great team? Are we looking after our team? Are we, you know, doing things ethically and, and well? And, and do we feel comfortable about all the decisions that we're making? Yes, we are. But, I, you know, so but it took us a while to realise this. But I think many people since you know, since COVID have, have kind of come around to this way. You know, everyone's, especially over here, when people have been working at home for a long time, just like, hang on, why was I doing this? Yeah. Why was I going and spending, you, you know, three hours a day commuting to the office well, you raised- when I could have just been at home having this much better work-life balance or I could have been, you know, working less for doing more? It's, well, you, it's, it's you, a real you, mind shift. You raise another thing that I've observed as well, and, and, and this is a huge generalisation and not everyone who's a real go-getter would, would be in this situation. But the number of times that one particular person that springs to mind is the guy that ended up buying the last place I lived in as a rental um, from my landlord, kind of came on and he was one of those guys who's like, you could tell he's a total like classic kind of real estate money guy. Um, uh, he had his little kid with him the Saturday morning that he came in to do something at my place, kind of rushing, phone half ringing. And he left his kid outside. I was like, bring your kid in, man. You know, he's one of those guys. I could, I could see him. This is me, like, totally judging a guy over meeting him for about 15 minutes. But I could just tell by the way his kid was behaving and stuff that this guy was, like, forsaking a Saturday morning with his kid who's just, like, completely ADD because he's never looked, you know, no one's ever looked at him because he's trying to close all these deals. And so the punchline of that is, however that manifests, growth, 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 it's just extra stress in your life. There's only so much money you need to be comfortable, right? And your yeah. and your business not fall over. Rapacious, that's a great word. Someone referred yeah. to do you know that I, that's new to my vocabulary. Do you know the word No, rapacious is a fantastic word. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like it almost it's not an onomatopoeic, but it almost feels it like feels like the word yeah, it feels like the meaning, right? And and the other thing is, um, yeah, it amazes me uh, how many people don't um, business owners don't kind of treat particularly retail and hospitality workers very well, you know. So um, that's great to hear as well. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think how little some retail and hospitality staff get paid. You know, I see all these things advertised at minimum wage. And you think, how are you even managing to get a bus to work yeah. on that salary? It's madness. Um so it's good to – I mean, it's an interesting time for, for, for retail and hospitality at the moment, especially with, with hospitality. It's obviously been a, a hell of a ride for hospitality businesses over the past year and a half. You know, they've been mandated to be closed for a lot of that time. Yeah. The 
support from the government hasn't been great. And now, of course, everything's starting to open back up, but there's no staff, a lot because of the results of, of Brexit. You know, a lot of the international um, staffers who are working yeah. in hospitality jobs have um, gone back to their own countries because they felt not welcome in this, this country, which is understandable. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. There's this, and also, you know, COVID, I think you know, a lot of a lot of our customers are moving out to the sea or they're moving back to be with their families. It's really seen the city. London is not the shining jewel in the crown that it once was because the central city has essentially died. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, meaning that there's not a lot of staff to go around. So hospitality is struggling. And I think what, they, what hospitality has to do is start valuing what they're paying people. And well, the other thing there is um, having also worked in, Hospo in Australia for a bit where the money's way better than here but there's still probably a lot more there bigger population is the same thing in London where the other thing is the amount of people in those industries who employ and this relates to people from offshore from other parts of Europe who just employ people for cash completely off the grid you know there's that whole mm-hmm. hidden economy of workers but um, I was going to say two quite large topics <laughs> How would you, having been on the ground there, this is just, yeah, as I say, it's ridiculously broad, but how would you sum up that whole Brexit experience, never mind getting to COVID, and what it's meant for you guys or what your take on it is, being someone who's lived in Britain through it? Yeah, well, I mean... Discuss! (laughs) It was, I mean, what a bombshell. I don't think... Anyone expected the Brexit vote to go this way, and, and more for us. You know. uh, I, clearly, you know, every, me and everyone I know, we, we voted Remain. Uh, I was actually at Glastonbury when, when the Brexit news came through. Yeah. Um, I remember I woke up on whatever day it was after the vote, and Glenn was kind of nudging me, going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And yeah, it put the biggest downer on the festival. You know, here's. Probably you know, two hundred thousand people. I'd say, you know, at least I mean, most of them would be remain. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they all voted remain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So everyone was shell shocked. You know, we'd had this big weekend, but it's like, let's go and see Underworld. Let's rave our tits off. Um, we couldn't handle it, so we ended up just going to see all this like super mellow stuff, like Cigaros and Mercury Rev. Like, <laughs> and is but this is this is just quickly the simple explanation, right? Is just like um, what it is often with a lot of elections that. Um, older conservative voters percentage-wise went out and voted more, right? They got out the vote. They yeah. absolutely got out the vote. I think there was a real complacency on the Remain side. Yeah. That we're not going to bother voting because who would vote for this craziness? You're not going to believe this bullshit on the side yeah. of a bus, eh? And, of course, they did, you know. It's just, yeah. you know, this part of a, you know, a much bigger kind of destabilisation campaign, I suspect, that, you know, they really – people – believe this nonsense that they were fed and it's not their fault you know it's you see something on big letters on the side of a bus and you're told repeatedly that you know this is you, you need to get our sovereignty back and all this this nonsense um you yeah. said something quite sinister there you said something quite sinister there you said you think it's part of a broader destabilization plan what do you mean there <laughs> i'm gonna sound like a crazy maniacal laugh no, I just you know I, I think if you look at the, the the amount of you know bots on on social media and stuff like that, there's so much organised campaigning to to kind of promote you know a sense of, of, of division, I suppose. You know whether that's break Brexit, whether it's COVID, 
yeah, it's yeah, it's it's quite sinister. So I, don't, I don't quite understand who's doing it, what's happening, but yeah, it, it definitely does seem that there's yeah. There, I hope it's not a bunch of shitty kids who are normally on Reddit, you know. Well, it could well be, but I mean, you, know, you look at Cambridge Analytica scandal here. Yeah, you know, the, the, the algorithms that are kind of forcing this nonsense into the, the forefront of people's feeds. It's, did you yeah. watch the documentary? That was quite quite eye opening, as they say. <laughs> and then, and again, I say, I'm sorry, I've just put it's such a ridiculous, it's such a overwhelmingly broad topic to to post you in one question. But I guess, I mean, the second one kind of here to kind of focus on your business like how's it affected you guys as business owners in the UK has it made it harder to kind of get stuff from nearer regions or I think for us yeah we, we didn't do a lot of direct importing you know we imported a little bit of hot sauce stuff like that from, from Europe so the direct effects for us haven't been huge I know that our wine suppliers have been finding it really hard yeah, up until recently, there was a lot of big red tape on bringing wine over from Europe. Um, I, I think the, the full effects have, have yet to be felt. You're starting to see it now that you can't get a lot of um, you know, you, deliveries will be delayed because there's just not enough drivers. And a lot of the drivers, of course, you know, would be have, would have been coming over from Europe. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to certainly un- unfold over the next uh, I think a lot of it's hidden by COVID at the moment as well. You know, there's this kind of just like, oh, you know, all the stuff that's, you know, all these empty shelves in supermarkets. Uh, that's because of COVID. It's it's not Brexit, but yeah, it probably it probably is. You know, I mean, what kind of country puts sanctions on itself? <laughs> it's essentially what's happened here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To go back to the good old days. Yeah. That's, yeah. But, you know, England's been through a lot of trauma. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It's the lag of, oh. of Zoom. But, you know, the country's been through a lot of trauma, right, in the last few years. England. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of that trauma was kind of brought on itself. But Well, who's itself, though? Yeah. Itself's you. You live there. Itself's the people you know. <laughs> itself's an yeah. interesting word. Did, True. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I find, I find the whole Brexit thing so exhausting. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, and I don't want to kind of bring it yeah. down towards no, the no, end. No. And, um, you know, it's the same thing with wanting to talk to you about COVID next. Honestly, it makes me so angry, and I just have to kind of – it just it takes up so much of my brain space. I hate I hate that it takes up so much of my brain space. Yeah. Maybe we'll leave COVID. I think people have had enough COVID. Oh, COVID. But no, no, well, we, can, we can talk briefly about COVID. Okay. Um, well, tell me your COVID stories, and I'll tell you my COVID stories. <laughs> I taught. Yeah. I taught once. I taught once or twice, um, exactly like this in this room, with my hair uh, freshly done for my four o'clock shoot and my pajama bottoms on. But I'm sure that was a global <laughs> experience. Although one, um, I did have a glass of wine while teaching. It didn't get silly, but I towards the end I was like, you can't start drinking during tutorials. <laughs> Go. Yeah, sneaky little hip class. Yeah. <laughs> Just like in the real class. No. Go yeah. on. <laughs> well, I was actually, I was actually sort of talking with with Russell Brown on um, Twitter this morning yeah. about you know about the the, the the huge contrast. He said he'd had a friend that had just come back over here and he'd been really surprised at you know the, the massive impact of, of what he called the, the kind of the COVID experience. And yeah, it's been it's been interesting chatting to people back into New Zealand because you know obviously our experiences of the pandemic have been so vastly different. Yeah, um, and I think you know I've had quite a few friends that have gone back to New Zealand in the last year, and they've felt you know very much that they they feel like Debbie Downer 
talking about their experiences at parties. You know, their immediate experience obviously has been you know, life in Plague Island. Yeah, <laughs> so there's yeah, not, yeah. Much, not much else they really have to, to talk about. I don't about. know why people would shut that down, though. I think that's fascinating. Mm. Like, and I think it put, 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 it, um, brings home kind of how lucky we are. Like, people aren't even... Um, People aren't even scanning here, and it's like people are so quick to forget. I don't know. I was standing outside the supermarket the other night, and I may have started counting, and I thought I'll stop when I count to 30. 30 people went in, um, and no one scanned. Mm. So, the same thing over here. Wales, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, masks were mandatory on public transport, mandatory in shops, you know, and they've started loosening that. So now it's um, this government's strange, like, you know, we're not going to make it a rule, we're just going to. Make it guidance, you know. You're advised. You should yeah. do this. Use your common sense. But the, and, of course, how that's doing it. It drives me insane. Mad. I wear a mask. I mean, I've, I've had the last year and a half like a spotty chin from wearing a mask yeah, yeah. 24-7. Um, just wear a mask. It's so not hard to do. But then the other but, side of it, and I'm not well, – I don't even, have to, don't even have to give this disclaimer that I'm not justifying fucking loonies and people with fringe theories, but there is the interesting side of, like – there must be psychologists working on this within government organisations and so on and health is like, how far can you push humans one way before they start to, there's all of that kind of like the psychology of the pack and keeping people motivated and like, again, not justifying people being douchebags, but I was only in lockdown for a few weeks compared to like friends in Victoria in Australia who've been at it for over a year now. I get how that could like, seriously push your patience you know it's a, it's a diff- it's such a difficult one such a difficult one but that's outside of kind of mismanagement and like you say like blatantly not doing kind of simple basic stuff um have you discovered loonies in your life that you didn't know were loonies like anti-vaxxers and social media is such a, 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 a an eye to people's souls sometimes yeah I've, I've not found too many actually i've been i've probably seen them all out on you know in the last like chemtrail <laughs> I've been pretty lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God, chemtrails! I forgot about those. They chemtrails are like I just thought of chemtrails with conspiracy theories are like how we look back on George Bush now compared to when Trump was in power. You know, it's like, yeah, oh. kind, of, kind of kind of fondly, kind of like a folk, <laughs> kind of like oh, chemtrails, George Bush, and. Um, <laughs> Remember when we thought that was as bad as it got? No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. A Photoshop of an inside of a plane with um, kind of crop dusters inside it. George, George Bush reading a picture book. Um, and then I haven't, because like the thing with COVID for me is um, not that I want to be ill-informed or uninformed, but we live in a world where too much information can just overwhelm me it's not actually good for me to so i haven't kind of followed the nuances of how different countries have looked after certain aspects but short version of that is um was the business okay when you closed down did they have kind of the same measures in places new zealand where you were able to were you able to pay your staff through 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 um state help and so on yeah well we were weirdly fortunate that we were considered a an essential business. So that, we didn't have to close so, down. That's so Britain, New Zealand, yeah. Australia. They, yeah. People need their beer. Yeah. Uh, so we, we did close down our Deptford site. It was just too small. and we just uh, Our manager there who would have had to take two buses to get to work. So during the first lockdown, we're just like, no, we don't want to put anyone's life at risk taking a bus to get to work. 
just to sell some beer. Yeah. So we sort of closed down various parts of it and we've kind of popped up and down. We, at the moment, we're just about to reopen the shop for browsing in, uh, which we haven't done for, you know, yeah, constantly throughout. So, so that's a big thing. I think people have looked at us just like, why are you still serving stuff through a hatch? Why can't I come in and browse? But we've taken a attitude, I suppose. We, you know, because we're from New Zealand, we've been watching really closely what New Zealand's been doing. Yeah, and you know, asking ourselves, yeah, what would Jacinda do? Uh, so we've been really super, super cautious. Yeah. but you know, we've still we've had a we've had a good year. You know, people. Want but so was it? Was it? I mean, I, don't, I actually just realised I can't even answer this here. I think I know the answer here, but what I think in New Zealand you got a flat amount of money for your business, regardless regardless of kind of turnover and so on. But yeah, so basically, if you were still trading online and so on. Was the government assistance kind of full stop package, or was it means there was tested? Various, yeah, there was various government assistance to, yeah. especially you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. They started kind of loosening it as as things went through. But certainly at the beginning, you'd, you didn't have to pay business rates, for example. They were they were put on hold for a year. Yeah. If you had to furlough your staff, you'd get payments for for you know letting your staff stay at home. So there was there was reasonable support, especially for the first six months. We're going to finish up soon. Um, uh, I'm answering. I'm asking a question you asked me to ask, or maybe you asked it, and I need to answer it. Anyway, um, why is Glastonbury the best festival on the planet? <laughs> uh, it is the greatest festival, uh, and you're not the first life. person I've heard it for. I've got to go one day. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I feel. I feel so sad. We've had tickets. So we've got our tickets in 2019 to go to the 2020 festival, and obviously that didn't happen. 2020-21 also didn't happen. So, I mean, if, if it comes back next year, it will be absolutely mega. Um, I, mean, I love it for the same reason that I love London. You know, it's yeah, so yeah. ridiculous and huge. Yeah. There's just so much to do that you can really feel like you're, you know, a trailblazer. You're seeking out yeah, your own yeah, yeah. best entertainment in town. Yeah. You know, you can go big at one of the main stages. You can see the best biggest bands in the whole world we can go exploring and stumble across this tiny tent with 20 people in it that most people won't even know exists and you know have the best night of your life it's it really is yeah it's, it's one of these magical places a lot of people get put off because of course it's two hundred thousand people it's fucking huge yeah that's huge i mean shit and, being from wellington that is huge yeah and you know to get from one side of the site to the other yeah is a 45 minute walk so you've got to be you've got to be pretty fit uh, yeah. If you're not fit at the start, you will be. You got to be. You got to be disco fit, as they say. Mm. Yeah, and of course, you know, for, for a lot of it, you know, let's be, let's be honest about it. Glastonbury it does have a problem with mud and rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've been to one festival where it hasn't rained at least once, and as soon as it rains at Glastonbury, it does. You know, the whole thing turns to, to a muddy field for at least a day. But um, I've, I've not yeah. I've not thought about this, it's, and it's a Google away. Um, if, if if you don't know, but I would say that would have to be one of the longest if not the longest-running festival, like, music festival in the world, wouldn't it? What's, yeah, what's I would been say going so. on I mean, in Glastonbury? 1969 or something like that. Yeah. It was, oh, actually, what, like the tw- 2020 was supposed to be the 50th anniversary. So, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it must be. Um, yeah, it's, My it's, mate Matty used to go every year and play bongos with, um, oh, no, what's his name? The main guy from The Clash who's since passed. 
Joe Strummer. He used to, yeah, because Joe Strummer obviously got right into yeah. into dance music and so on. He ended up playing. Well, yeah, the tradition he's of playing 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 bongos every every year back in yeah. Syria. Well, he established this wonderful site. It's actually one of my favourite places in the festival called Strummerville. That's right. Is, That's the part of the story. Yeah, it, it was a it used to be just a big bonfire that everyone just sat around and you know they'd have live music and yeah, it's quite a special place. Speaking of a bonfire of a festival, um, if you want to watch something highly entertaining, um, the new Woodstock, Woodstock, yeah, the Woodstock '99 doco. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it. It's on my uh, my watch list. Oh I've my god! Like, I just realised I was going to say go and watch it after this, but I'm I'm the one at the end of the day. You're not. But yeah, watch it soon. It's um oh, oh honestly, that's a podcast chat in itself. Um, when you try, how do I sum it up? When you try and dress up late. 20th century capitalism as 60s hippie idealism and also charge $5 for a very small bottle of water, things aren't going to go well. Um, it's been a pleasure. I think it's been it, really nice, isn't it? At the beginning, I was a bit, I, as I say, I was a bit kind of all over the shop, but I, I often surprise myself um, when I listen back. And then also, if worst comes to the worst, there's always editing. But you were very good. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> okay, take care. Um, this will actually be up sooner than you think because I haven't put one up for a while. And um, so, yeah, probably in the next couple of days. And I just, I'll just hit stop here. P-E-C-K-H-A-M Winner from P-E-C-K-H-A-M P-E-C-K-H-A-M Then I said P-E-C-K-H-A-M Man, a peckin' boy Don't ask me if I'm reppin', boy Man, I'm reppin'